4. It was one of the distinguishing privileges of the Jews, to be in covenant with God. I am married unto you, says the Lord. The privileges of the Christian church are increased, and not diminished. The Old Testament dispensation, compared to the New, is denominated a system of beggarly elements. In the present system, there is no abridgment of privileges. Every immunity in the old either continues to exist, or is superadded by another more valuable and more adapted to the spirituality of the new order of things, in which the shadows have given place to the substance. Hebrews 12, 18 For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and etc. But verse 22 You are come unto Mount Zion, and etc. 5. This duty is involved in the church's relation to God. The language, in which he recognizes this relation, includes so much, Hosea 2, 19, 20. I will betroth thee unto me, and etc. All real believers are united, by this marriage covenant to Christ, and to one another. They are closely connected with him as their head, and joined to one another as members of the same body, actuated by the same spirit, Ephesians 5, 30 and 4, 25. Covenanting is only a solemn recognition of this relation, an engagement to evidence this by a life and conversation becoming the gospel. In Isaiah 62, 4, a passage which alluded to New Testament times, as is evident from the two verses immediately preceding, where the calling of the Gentiles and the latter-day glory are clearly intimated, national covenanting is signified under the notion of marriage relation, thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, and etc. By the marriage of a land unto God, we are not to understand, that the trees of the forest, the mountains or plains, come under engagements. Surely it must be the nation inhabiting the land. National marriage implies a national deed, whereby the inhabitants, in their national capacity, solemnly covenant unto the Lord. 6. God has on various occasions, signally countenanced his people, in coming under their social engagements. Witness the Reformation in Scotland, during the 16th century. The zealous Scots engaged heartily in this work, renewed their bonds again and again, in adaptation to their circumstances, and God wonderfully countenanced their efforts, and crowned them with success, notwithstanding the secret stratagems, and open opposition of the blind votaries of the Church of Rome. And in the 17th century, when God began to sift the house of Jacob, he did not suffer the least grain of the wheat to be lost, Amos 9, 9. He performed to them his promise, Isaiah 43, 4. To the happy experience of the renowned sufferers, he supported them amidst the most excruciating agonies, too, which they were subjected by the satellites of the man of sin, to the astonishment even of their persecutors. It was abundantly evident they enjoyed the smiles of the divine approbation. The Son of God was with them in the fiery furnace. He sent them help out of the sanctuary, and strengthened them from Zion. He remembered their offerings, and accepted their sacrifices, Psalm 20, 2, 3. Having attempted to show the morality of this duty, under the New Testament dispensation, we will in the 6. Head, endeavor to ascertain the times and seasons, when a church or nation is more particularly called to engage in it. It is clear from scripture, that covenanting is not a stated or ordinary, but an occasional and extraordinary duty. To ascertain the proper season for the performance of this duty, 
we must keep our eyes fixed upon the ark of divine providence, and carefully observe all its motions. These moments of providence, we are carefully to compare with those under which the church of old existed, when she, with divine approbation, entered into covenant. Then they became examples unto us. Similar seasons will require similar duties. Whether the present time is a proper season for Kurbanading, or whether proper seasons have passed over our heads, since the last renovation of our solemn covenants, and have been neglected, I shall not pretend to determine. I leave this to the decision of the church judicative. All I shall do, is, to mention some of the times and seasons when the Jewish church, with the approbation of God, engaged in this duty. Every man may compare the present time with these, and judge for himself. 1. Times of public humiliation for apostasy from God seem to be proper seasons, Jeremiah 50, 4, 5. In those days, and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, going and weeping they shall go, and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with their faces to their ward, saying, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord, in a perpetual covenant, that shall not be forgotten. This passage evidently refers to New Testament times. Deep humiliation and fasting before God are concomitants of this duty. See Nehemiah 9, 1, 38. 2. This duty was essayed by the church also in times of public reformation. Thus in the reign of Josiah, the illustrious Jewish reformer, the nation engaged in public covenanting, 2 Kings 23, 1-3. In the first and second verses, all the people of the land are convened, and the book of the law, found in the temple by Hilkah the priest, is publicly read to the congregation. In the third verse we are informed of the covenant, its matter, and the people's resolution to adhere to it. And the king stood by a pillar, and made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments, and his testimonies, and his statutes, with all their heart, and all their soul, to perform the words of this covenant, that were written in this book and all the people stood to the covenant. This example was carefully imitated by our ancestors in the 16th century. 3. The church of old engaged in this duty, in times of public thanksgiving, for special deliverance. Thus in 2 Kings 11. When the reins of government were wrenched out of the hands of the wicked Athaliah, and the young prince Joash crowned and anointed king, we are informed, verse 17, that Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, between the king and the people. And verse 20, all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was in quiet. To the same purpose in Psalm 76, which was penned on the deliverance of Jerusalem, from Sennacherib's army, in the days of Hezekiah, the Spirit of God calls upon the church and nation of the Jews, to covenant unto the Lord in testimony of their thankfulness. Verse 11. Vow, and pay unto the Lord your God. 4. Another season for public covenanting, sanctioned by the example of the Old Testament church, is, when the hearts of God's professed people seem bent on backsliding in apostasy from him. Thus Moses, finding the children of Israel of a backsliding disposition, and fearing that they would apostatize after his death, calls upon them to a renovation of covenant with God, that their hearts might thus be established and fortified against iniquity, Deuteronomy 29, 10-15.
In like manner, Joshua seeing the rebellious disposition of the tribes of Israel, shortly before his death called them together to Shechem, and made them give bond for their good behavior, when he would be gone to his fathers, Joshua 24, 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a statute, and an ordinance, in Shechem. 5. Times of great affeeing of the divine spirit seem to be proper seasons for covenanting. When God promises times of refreshing from his own presence, we find this important duty essayed with great alacrity. Thus Isaiah 44, 3-5. I will pour water on him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. In consequence of this effusion of the waters of the upper sanctuary, they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the water courses. Feeling in their souls those blessed influences of the Holy Ghost, they give themselves away unto God, in a covenant not to be forgotten. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. To call oneself the Lord's implies a surrender of person and service unto him. To designate oneself by the name of Jacob, and to surname oneself by the name of Israel, imply connection with the Church of Christ, the New Testament Jacob. To subscribe with a hand unto the Lord seems to involve in it, entering into a covenant bond, to be faithful in the performance of duty. 6. Another season for public social covenanting with God is, when we commemorate the death of Jesus in our sacramental feast. It is generally known that the word sacrament signifies an oath. It is a military term borrowed from the Romans. Those who were enlisted soldiers in the army swore fidelity to their general, and this oath was by them called sacramentum. This term has been, very properly, transferred from the military to the theological department, and is only another name for baptism or the Lord's Supper. The reason of this is evident. In these ordinances, we are considered as swearing allegiance to the captain of salvation. The Supper, being a social institution, is that with which we are concerned at present. As Jesus confirmed the covenant by his death, and commanded this to be commemorated by the symbolical representation of bread and wine, we, by participating of them, solemnly says Amen to that glorious transaction, and engage to fight valiantly under his banner. Hence the supper is called the New Testament in his blood, and partaking of the feast, a showing forth his death till he come. In this ordinance, therefore, the church publicly covenants with God, and engages, through the strength of grace, to resist the devil, the world and the flesh. But that covenanting, in this way, does not supersede the necessity of entering into a formal bond, will appear more fully in the 7. Head, which shall consist in answering some of the objections, made against the doctrine of covenanting, as handled in the preceding part of this discourse. 1. Objection. Since covenants and etc. bind only to those duties, to which we are previously bound by the moral law, they are unnecessary. The matter of any promise, or engagement, must be either right, wrong, or indifferent, if right, we are bound to it independently of any act of ours, if wrong, no act of ours can bind us to it, if indifferent, to these there can be no obligation. Not to mention that this objection is theistical, with a witness, for the scripture expressly says, vow, and pay, and etc., and declares, 
that an oath for confirmation is the end of strife, Hebrews 6, 16, it may be observed that it is repugnant to the common sense of mankind. Among all nations, an oath or covenant constitutes the highest security, which a man can give for his veracity and integrity. When a person is summoned as a witness, before a court of justice, he is necessarily bound by the moral law, to tell the truth between man and man. See the ninth precept of the Decalogue, Exodus 20, 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. By the objection under consideration, an oath then would be useless. The propriety of superadded self-obligation was already illustrated. It shall not now be resumed. I would only observe that, when the witness is tested, he recognizes the obligation of the moral law, and, by his own act, solemnly binds himself to do conscientiously what it requires. In like manner, in covenanting to God, we acknowledge ourselves previously bound, by the moral law, to obey and serve him with all our heart, and etc. and solemnly bind ourselves to a conscientious performance of the duties therein commanded. And as the witness after swearing, if he tell what is not true, is guilty not only of a lie, in violating the moral law, but also of perjury, in breaking his oath, so an ungodly covenanter, is guilty, not only of a breach of the moral law, but also of perfidiousness in covenant engagements. And as it is more likely, that the witness will tell the truth when sworn to do so, as is evident by the common sense of mankind, so when we solemnly bind ourselves by an oath unto God, it is probable, that we will be more conscientious in performance. With respect to matters of mere indifference, they ought not to constitute the substance of a religious covenant. Whatever enters into the matter of such an engagement, must either be, in its nature, a moral duty, or, though in itself indifferent, yet, from accidental circumstances, be calculated to promote sanctification of life. In virtue of these very circumstances, the thing may cease to be indifferent, and become obligatory, independently of covenant engagement. Perhaps the wreck habits abstinence from wine, mentioned with divine approbation, Jeremiah 35 is a case of this kind. Probably the abuse of this liquor was such that it became a duty, not only to abstain from it, but also to engage to abstinence, till by so doing, they got the mastery of that vitiated habit. In other circumstances, the use of wine, was not only lawful but even recommended as medicinal, Paul says to Timothy, drink no longer water, but use a little wine, and etc. That a thing, in itself indifferent, may, by accidental circumstances cease to be so, is perhaps well illustrated, by the obligation under which the children of Israel came, Genesis 50, 25, concerning Joseph's bones. After a lapse of two hundred years, when about to leave Egypt, they considered themselves bound by their engagement to Joseph, Exodus 13, 19. Though it be a matter of no moment, where a man's bones are after his death, yet the circumstances of Joseph's being an eminent type of Jesus, and the Savior of his father's house rendered it necessary, that as be carefully kept, and in due time deposited in the land of promise. They were to the poor brickmakers a certain pledge of deliverance from bondage, and an earnest of the covenanted inheritance. Hence Joseph says, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. These circumstances, therefore stripped this thing of its indifference, and made it a ground of encouragement, and mean of holiness. Accordingly we read, Hebrews 11, 
22. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, and gave commandment concerning his bones. 2. Object. The British covenants were only oaths of allegiance to a particular sovereign or family, and were nullified by the new order of things at the Revolution settlement. Their obligations ceased with the House of Stuart, unto which they were sworn. It will readily be admitted, they were oaths of allegiance. But to whom? Primarily to the ruler of the skies, and to the government only, while continuing to prosecute the interests of the King of Kings. If they were oaths of allegiance to God, let us examine whether anything has happened, which can dissolve their obligation. There are three things, which, when they happen, may dissolve the obligation of oaths of allegiance. 1. The dissolution of the dynasty or government unto which they were sworn. One of the parties then becomes extinct, and the other of course loosed from the obligation. 2. Emigration from the realm, where allegiance was sworn. Protection and allegiance being reciprocal, when the former is neither sought nor needed, the latter ceases to exist. 3. When there occur breaches of a mutual compact entered into between the ruler and the people, they are loosed from all obligation of allegiance to him. He has not implemented the condition, and consequently has no right to the obedience promised upon the fulfillment thereof. None of all these supposed cases can take place, to dissolve our allegiance to the Most High God. His government cannot be dissolved. It never did, or can, experience the smallest interregnum, Daniel 7, 27. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It is impossible to elope from his dominions, Psalm 47, 7. For God is the king of all the earth. He can never prove unfaithful to his engagements. This would be inconsistent with his immutability, as we read, Malachi 3, 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. The mountains shall depart, and the hills remove, but he shall never fail to implement his covenant to his people, Isaiah 54, 10. 3. Object. In the British covenant civil and religious things are blended together in the same bond. These ought to be kept entirely distinct. It would be inconsistent with the nature of this discourse, to consider in what things church and state agree, and in what they differ. There is a just distinction between them. They ought never to be confounded. But does it follow, that because civil and religious duties are both contained in the same bond, they are therefore confounded, or criminally blended together? Must the instrument on this account be rejected as reprobate silver? If this be the case, what will we then do with the sacred volume of divine revelation? It contains both religious and civil duties. It is equally peremptory in enjoining both. 1 Peter 2, 13, 14 Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether it be to king, as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. And Hebrews 13, 17 Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. But we find them even in the same verse. Fear God. Honor the king. The example of the saints in these bonds, are yet upon record, Nehemiah 9, 38. When the princes, priests, Levites, 
and all the people sealed the covenant, all, in their respective relations, bind themselves to the performance of all duties, civil and religious, contained in the divine law. See chapter 10, 28, 29. 4. Object. Since you deny that the present powers have any rightful claim to allegiance from the British covenants, there is at least part of these bonds, which in their present form, has no obligation. The form then is changed. But as matter and form are both necessary to the existence of anything, destroy the form and the thing ceases to exist in the predicament in which it formerly existed. The form of these covenants is destroyed by your own principles, therefore their existence as covenants ceases. There are, to be sure, some people, in other respects judicious, who rigidly contend for the covenants precisely in their present form. As in their present form they comprehend all ranks, we noblemen, and etc., some think that though the government, and great majority of the nation have risen from their engagements, yet in their present form their friends can find language sufficiently precise, and adapted to their rank and situation. However well meant this may be it is doubtless a mistake. When taken in connection with the pious views of its advocates, it may perhaps be properly denominated a right-hand extreme. They are afraid of infringing upon sacred deeds. Such a disposition is laudable. Let it however be subjected to the dominion of reason. Contempt for the deeds of ancestors, on the one hand, and a superstitious veneration for them, on the other, are extremes equally to be avoided. The former is impious, the latter is idolatrous. What is there in human composition, which may not admit of alteration? The fluctuation of living languages clearly demonstrates this. The language of our ancestors 500 years ago, however suitable to those times, is barely intelligible at present, and in several instances, scarcely decent. Take the venerable Wycliffe's translation of the Bible, as a proof of this. This is not meant as a reflection on our forefathers, but is owing to that constant flux, which is found in the mode of phraseology of all living languages. But it may be farther observed, that circumstances also often vary. Much of the forms of covenants depend upon these circumstances. The form of course ought to vary, with the circumstances which produced it. For instance, our covenants could not be renewed in their present form, without many explanations and marginal references. What valuable purpose would this serve? What is there so sacred in the bare phraseology of these covenants, that, when explanations are necessary, we may not substitute these for the original text? If there be, I confess I cannot see it. Let every moral duty in these sacred deeds, be carefully gathered up, and put into a form and phraseology, adapted to our existing circumstances. To these we are already bound, not only as moral, but also as covenant duties. We are bound to them, not only by the divine law, but also by our representation in our fathers, which we consider equally obligatory as our own solemn act. That the forms of covenants are only circumstantial, and may be lawfully altered as circumstances require, is abundantly evident from the history of covenanting in the Old Testament. But admitting as I have done, an alteration in the form of these covenants, this does not destroy their validity, or nullify their covenant obligation. It might be asked, how much of the present form of anything is essential, to its specific existence? Legs, feet and toes, arms, hands and fingers all belong to the present form of human beings, 
but should a finger, or toe, or even an arm or leg be cut off, the form would be somewhat altered. Would this amputation destroy the essentials of humanity? Suppose a man, who has a wife and family, enters into the ministerial office, part of his ordination vow is, that he shall faithfully discharge the duties of the conjugal relation. Should his wife and children die, and he stand no longer in a family capacity, this part of the vow being circumstantial, ceases with this change in his circumstances. Does this destroy, or in the least invalidate his ordination oath? Certainly not. He has no less ministerial authority on this account. In like manner the obligation of the moral duties contained in these covenants, not only as moral, but also as covenant duties, still remains though their form and phraseology may undergo considerable alterations. The example of the reformers in the 16th century is full in point. 5. Object. We covenant with God in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Anything more is unnecessary. This proves too much, and consequently, by a well-known rule in reasoning, proves nothing. According to this, covenanting in Old Testament times was unnecessary. The church then covenanted with God, in the institutions of circumcision and the Passover, which were substantially the same with baptism and the Lord's Supper in New Testament times. This however did not render public social covenanting unnecessary then, neither does it now. 6. Object. To make adherence to these covenants, and an unlimited approbation of every tenet and act of the reformers, in entering into and maintaining them, necessary to admission to church privileges, renders your terms of communion very complex and unwieldy. And as many of the documents are now involved in obscurity, through the lapse of time, and the inaccuracy of records, a considerable part must be believed implicitly, and rested upon the fallible testimony of men. Perhaps it may be admitted, that our terms of church communion could well enough bear some simplification, and amendment. We never believed them to be perfect with respect to an unlimited approbation of our venerable reformers, this we never require. We would wish to be followers of them as far as they are followers of Christ. We would call no man master, with regard to the articles of our faith. To the law and to the testimony of God, we would look for the sanction of all our religious principles, and approve of our ancestors, only as far as their conduct was agreeable to that unerring rule. We adhere to our present religious system, not because it was adopted by our ancestors, but because we believe it to be agreeable to the word of God, and consequently ought to be adopted by all nations, wherever the scriptures have been revealed. We admire their faithfulness and valiant contending, and hold ourselves bound to go and do likewise. As to the charge of implicit faith, it will, I trust, appear unfounded. Some knowledge of the history of any society is necessary previous to a junction with it. Upon the man, who would connect himself with any particular society of men, independently of this knowledge, the charge of implicit faith may justly devolve. This is necessary to form an accurate view of the ground on which the society stands. Particular parts of its history may be so interwoven with its constitution and laws, that the knowledge of the former is necessary to appreciate the value of the latter. With these, it is the business of every one, who intends connecting himself with a society, to be acquainted. Just so in our church admissions. We do not make anything a term of communion, but what is founded on the word of God. 
and when we find a man totally ignorant of our ecclesiastical history, we consider him unqualified to be an accurate judge of our church standing. I shall now conclude the subject with a few inferences. From the text and doctrine, we may see that all our rights are limited by the divine law. What it commands we have a right to perform. What it forbids we have no right to do. It was already observed that God has delegated moral power to rational power to rational agents. This is the origin of all our rights. That men have a right to worship God, whatever way their conscience may dictate, is, with the present generation, a very popular doctrine. It has insinuated itself, into the creeds of almost all denominations of professing Christians. The man who denies it, is accounted an enemy to society and is branded as maintaining persecuting principles. We maintain that men have no right to worship God, any other way than he himself has prescribed, and that every deviation, therefrom, is a violation of his law, and rebellion against his sovereign majesty. But if conscience have any such right, it may not be improper to inquire how it came by it. It must have it, either inherently in itself independently of God, or it must have it by derivation from him. The former supposition is blasphemous. It strikes at the independence of deity, and vests the creature with one of his incommunicable attributes. The latter is absurd. To allow that God has delegated to his moral subjects, a right of rebelling against himself, implies a contradiction. That which we have a right to do, we may do lawfully, and without blame. But God has enjoined obedience to his law, under pain of eternal damnation, yet by the hypothesis. We may, if our conscience dictates so, lawfully violate this law, for we have a right to do it. But God can delegate no such right to his creatures. It would be inconsistent with his nature and perfections. Either the divine law has some precise meaning, or it has not. If the latter, it is useless. It would be gross imposition to give a law, which has no meaning, and at the same time punish the violation of it with eternal misery. If it have any precise meaning, when it says one thing, and conscience the opposite, which of the two is to be considered as paramount? If conscience have a negative over the divine law, then it is superior not only to the law, but also to the legislator, inasmuch as it authorizes as right, that which he has forbidden. The law of God, as revealed in the scriptures of truth, is therefore the only enduring rule, by which all our rights are limited and by which all our conduct ought uniformly to be regulated. This extends to things civil as well as religious. How strange that the glimmering rays of nature's light should be preferred to the splendid illuminations of the holy oracles. It is indeed strange, passing strange, that Christians should deny their obligation, to take the divine law, for the rule of every part of their conduct. Are not they the moral subjects of the King of Heaven? If so, are not they bound to adhere to all his institutions? Will not their refusal be accounted rebellion? Let us try it, for a moment, by the laws, which regulate the relation between earthly rulers, and their subjects. Suppose an earthly monarch sends his deputy, to take the government of a distant province. He gives him a schedule of the laws, by which the government is to be conducted. Suppose him to lose it in a fit of debauchery, on his way to the place of destination. His sovereign gets word of it. Though capitally punishable for his criminal conduct, yet in his clemency, 
instead of executing justice, he remembers mercy, and sends him a new copy for the rule of his administrations. He refuses to receive it. He remembers some scattered hints of the old one, and arrogantly proposes to govern thereby. In what light is such a one to be viewed? Is he not to be considered a rebel against his lawful sovereign? Let this be applied to our relation to God. The application is so obvious, that it is unnecessary to condescend upon particulars. When the Lord in goodness has sent his law to any nation or people, they are bound to receive it with thankfulness, and make it the rule of their civil as well as religious institutions. Should they refuse it, either in whole or in part, are they not to be considered rebels against the king of nations? Can any political deed of a nation, which has the revealed word, and yet despises it, refusing to graft its laws and regulation upon it, bind the conscience? Is not that nation still worse, which, though it has recognized the law as its rule, and solemnly sworn allegiance to God agreeably to its requisitions, casts all behind its back, and persists in rebellion against the omnipotent? The deed of a society constituted upon such a basis cannot bind the conscience. 2. From this text and doctrine, we may see that it is the duty of a church or nation to covenant with God. He has expressly commanded it. When done, he has recognized the obligation. The example of the saints in Old Testament times, and of our ancestors in reforming periods, ought not to be lightly esteemed. Though dead, they yet speak to us by their example, saying, Go you and do likewise. 3. Hence we may see the great sin of covenant breaking. It is in direct opposition to the divine law, pours contempt on the authority of heaven's eternal sovereign, is rebellion against his government, and justly exposes to the awful vengeance of his wrath. Hence we find the scriptures abounding with dreadful denunciations of wrath, against those who are chargeable with this sin. Various instances might easily be adduced. See Deuteronomy 29, 25-20. Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them, when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, for they went and served other gods, and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not, and whom he had not given unto them, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, to bring upon it all the curses, that are written in this book and the Lord rooted them out of their land in anger, and in wrath, and in great indignation, and cast them into another land, as it is this day. Could language represent in stronger terms the awful vengeance of God, on those guilty of this highly aggravated sin? With the above passage consult Jeremiah 22, 8, 9, Ezekiel 17, 15-22. Lastly, from this subject we may see the great advantage, of keeping covenant with God. It is an excellent means of holiness, and well adapted to our spiritual and religious improvement. The consideration of self-obligation, involved in the very nature of covenants, is calculated to impress the mind, and becomes a new incitement to the performance of duty. Psalm 119, 106 I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. Fidelity to our covenant engagements with God is an excellent mean for obtaining mercies. Both temporal and spiritual blessings are promised, Isaiah 56, 4, 6. In Deuteronomy 5, 33, after mentioning the covenant of the children of Israel, and stating the duties contained in it, 
we find obedience urged and expected, by the powerful argument of self-interest, you shall walk in all the ways, which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. By keeping covenant with God, we maintain with Him, the most honorable relation, Isaiah 62, 4. Thou shalt be called Hephzibabah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delights in thee, and thy land shall be married. Can any relation be more honorable than this? Will not the very consideration of it, actuate as a new principle of activity and duty, and give vigor to the spring of evangelical obedience? By conscientious adherence to covenant engagement, vice and immorality, so offensive to God and disgraceful to our kind, are greatly discouraged, and the state of society gradually ameliorated. And, finally, by steadiness to covenant engagements to regulate every part of our conduct by the moral law, we contribute our might to the glory of God, and approach nearer and nearer to that ground, on which the church is commanded to stand, and which she shall occupy, when Jesus shall reign in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion, and before his ancients gloriously. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.